Hello, friends. We are back with episode 73 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I am joined by my supremely awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? I'm great. I just got back from a little uh, bike ride with my kiddos on the way back from school, so I'm calm me down physically, and nothing to calm me down better than some talking about some great art content with you. Um, so this week, um, our issue was curated by John Calder, one of our really longtime uh, curators on our weekly. He's taught me a lot about the process, so it's always great to have him on the docket, and he's uh, put together an awesome issue for us. And as always, we have excellent help from our fellow Our Weekly curators and our contributors all around the world. So let's hop into it with our first topic about something that was kept pretty hush-hush until recently, but boy, has it caused a lot of attention in the art community. And we even gave you a little teaser of this in the last episode. But what are we going to talk about? Now we're talking about Quarto. Now, what is Quarto exactly? Well, I'll tell you how I found out about this. Um, I found out just through some random exploration on our studio's GitHub repo. Back in August of last year, I was poking around for some of the shiny stuff they've been up to, and somehow I saw this thing called Quarto. And I started checking it out, and I thought, oh, this looks pretty big here. And in fact, I even put an issue on their tracker saying, hey, are, are you okay for some of us to give it a shot? And JJ O'Leary, CEO of our studio, said, yeah, we welcome all feedback. And it has been in rapid development even since before that point. But um, the website actually went public in June of last year, according to my little sleuthing on Internet Archive. And there, like I said, there's been a lot of development on this. And recently... Allison Hill, who is now a senior data scientist in AI and machine learning at IBM, who formerly was product manager of the R Markdown ecosystem at our studio, she has written an awesome blog post that's lifting this virtual code of silence, at least on her blog, to give us her down-to-earth rundown of Quarto, what it is, the current state, and where it fits in the big picture of literate programming in the scientific technical space. Now, if you're hearing about Quartal for the first time on this podcast, you may be wondering why is this even here, given what is already a rich and influential history of our markdown, which has been created by many of the same people behind Quartal here at our studio. Well, Quartal is another play, and this is my words now, of this idea of both choice and interoperability in data science tooling. Our markdown, for those that hopefully are aware, um, it has supported the use of other languages in the code chunks as you compile your documents. Obviously Python, you can even do Julia. Heck, you can even do SAS in it. But you are probably still depending on R to bring it all together. Now, R Markdown itself is an R package that enables the ma major output formats of, say, HTML, PDF, and even Word documents because it's standing on the shoulders of Pandoc. But if you want to do some of the newer things that we're seeing, especially in the community, such as building a website, building a book in Bookdown, you do have to tap into some of these additional packages in the ecosystem to go beyond these built-in formats. 
Now, Quarto, like our markdown, still relies heavily on Pandoc for the actual conversion. But here's where some of the differences come in. Quarto is actually a separate piece of software. This isn't just a package in the R ecosystem itself. I even took a look at this aforementioned GitHub repo, and it looks like Quarto was written in TypeScript, which is a quite popular programming language in the space of software development. So with this separation of the engine, Quarto itself, from being hooked to a specific language, this allows flexibility to tap into these languages as you need. You obviously get your fun with R, with the R Markdown-based code chunks, using R itself as the engine. But if you're exclusively working with Python, they got you covered. It just relies on Jupyter for the engine for that. And yes, Julia as well, with that same aforementioned Jupyter engine, as well as JavaScript-based widgets and visualizations, say with D3 or other frameworks. So you can get the sense, at least from my perspective, the Quartal team has learned quite a few lessons from their R Markdown development, and you get so much more choice in output generation within this single Quartal installation. Now, as I mentioned, R Markdown was limited to basically three you know, major formats. Quartal comes with a lot of output formats under the tin here. You can have a Quartal book. You can have a Quartal website. You can interact with Shiny. You can interact, like I said, custom JavaScript. You have slide generation with Reveal.js hooks that are much more customizable than what we saw in previous inclinations or incarnations with the Reveal.js package in R. And that's something I'm particularly interested in because I have to build some slides now and I'm going to give it a shot with Quartal's uh, version of Reveal.js to see how it forms. I will say that there are some potential hurdles that Allison calls out in your mental models of shifting your focus from R Markdown exclusively to building with Quarto. There are some syntax changes and some code chunk options and some of the YAML options. But once you go through it once, I think the documentation on the Quartal website will get you up to speed quite easily. And you can start small, you can start with traditional HTML, but one of the other guiding principles is that they wanna make it as easy as possible for users to not only switch to different formats without a whole lot of cognitive shift in the syntax they're creating, but to do multiple formats pretty seamlessly. We're obviously still in the early stages of Quartal. It is looking like our studio is going to do a major set of uh, discussions, presentations, and even workshops at the upcoming our studio conference to really put Quartal out there in the in the R community. But I am I am going to you know live on the bleeding edge here. I'm going to give it a shot for building some of my materials coming up for my presentations. But I am extremely excited. I think it is the culmination of a lot of learning and a lot of innovation that's coming up in the art community. So that's my spiel on it. Mike, what are your thoughts on Cordo? Yeah, it seems like our studio is going all in on Cordo. You mentioned that they're going to be doing some demos, I think, at our studio comp this summer on it. I, it certainly seems like it's going to be a game changer by making a lot of things that were difficult in our markdown easier, as well as provide a ton of additional enhancements that we never had before. This has all been pretty secret, like you said, and I think that was sort of the nature of the blog post as well that Allison put together, except for folks that were diving into the bowels of our studio's GitHub repositories, 
like Eric <laughs> and discovered this a year ago. One of Allison's favorite features that she points out is now it is much easier to write documents with a two column layout than it used to be with our markdown. So if you have to author documents where it makes sense to have a two column layout, uh, the portal might be a great solution for you. One of the big wins for me that I saw in her blog, which maybe uh, you can recently do in our markdown, I'm not sure, but it is definitely highlighted in Cordo is this hash pipe. It's this new pipe that starts with the pound sign and then a vertical bar, which allows you to specify chunk options like uh, verbose equals true or echo equals false or the alt text for a plot. You can specify those options within the chunk and not in the chunk R header actually within the chunk. And it leads to a much cleaner specification of all of the unique options that you want to apply to that chunk. Um, additionally, you can specify the global default chunk options in the YAML header of the script. So there's no more need for that first chunk in your R markdown that's like the set options <laughs> chunk um, that, you know, that sort of just takes up extra space and doesn't really make sense to, to be where it is as part of your script. So it'll be right. nice to have that right up there in the YAML. I haven't actually tried out Porto yet, I'm going to be honest. I do feel like this is some real ground, groundbreaking time in the R and RStudio community. First, they gave us a native base pipe. That was mind-blowing. And now they're giving us a better R Markdown service. You know, R Markdown, which has been just sort of the backbone of, um, you know, that and Shiny have been the backbone of, of how we communicate as data scientists. So... While change can, can definitely be scary, you know, I will admit that I think it's going to take me some more time to get comfortable with Quarto and migrate my work over to it. You know, I think we're so fortunate to be living in the age of open source where we constantly get new cutting edge tools developed by the brightest minds in the space who are trying to make our lives as developers easier every day. And, and of course, you know, the R ecosystem is generally pretty concerned about backwards compatibility. So obviously, if you want to continue your R markdown, analyses for a while while you're getting your feet wet with Porto, you should have nothing to worry about. You brought up a lot of great points, sir. And the idea also is that our, our studio is not turning off the lights to R Markdown itself. That is going to keep going. That is a foundational technology that is still used in so many, you know, data science workflows, whether it's production workflows in industry or in academia with collaboration and reproducible research. So don't, yeah, don't feel like you have to be forced to go into this now. Um, but I, I also commend the team for putting documentation on using Quarto itself once they got things in a, you know, at least a relatively stable spot to begin telling us how to use it. The documentation is top notch. They had hired a summer intern last year to really polish that up, it looks like. And you can, you can tell the attention to detail that's been put in there great gallery of examples. So if you're interested in just a specific form of output, there are use cases right there for you to copy paste from. And I think, yeah, for me, certainly I'm, I haven't moved into like my, my day job workflows into Cordo yet due to the early nature, but that's not stopping me from my other stuff of trying it out. And in the um, live stream I did the other week, I got it installed in my fancy schmancy Docker remote container setup, um, worked with it with VS Code and RStudio jointly, works very well. And that's where I made the call on stream. It was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm banking it here. My upcoming shiny workshop going to be built with Cordo. 
<laughs> go from there. So it's on record. I can't go back now, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. And also, uh, there, I want to point, I'll have a link to this in the show notes, but on the GitHub repo for the Quarto CLI, that's kind of the standalone installer. They have set up a discussion board. So it's, if you have more general questions about Quarto that aren't like specific to a technical, you know, issue or a bug report, um, this has been very active. I've seen JJ, I've seen many of the other developers weigh in on important topics there. So if you want to, you know, bring awareness to an issue with Quarto, or if you're curious about certain things, this is the time to get involved. They are really active and it's a great way to contribute to open source without necessarily contributing code. It's right in the spirit of that. As you, as you said, Mike, it's great to live in this day and age where open source gives us the, uh, these opportunities to really collaborate. Absolutely. I think that's a great point that this, you know, w- with any new project, um, as we're fleshing it out in the community, it does bring up a great opportunity for you to contribute, even if it's just documentation, especially if it's just, uh, you know, editing documentation um, to, to help others out who are trying to learn this new technology as well. So, Yep. And we'll be watching this space closely. And I do plan on you know, putting Quarto for the paces, whether it's on stream or offline, offline, you'll, you'll find out one way or another. And, um, speaking of telling stories, um, where our next highlight is taking a visual approach to telling stories with ggplot too. And Mike, why don't you take us through this journey here? Sure. So Albert Rapp, he has made our weekly a few times in recent memory and huge kudos to him for continuing to push out great content to the R community. His blog post this week is based off of a YouTube video from the Storytelling with Data team, or SWD uh, for short, in which Elizabeth from the Storytelling with Data team walks through how she took a chart um, that she thought could use a little help and made a ton of design enhancements that went a long way towards communicating the story behind the data in that chart much more effectively. So in that video tutorial on YouTube, which we'll have in the show notes, um, there, there isn't any code shown. It's just slides and a discussion uh, from a design perspective on the, on the flaws of the original chart and the step-by-step improvements uh, that she made. But Albert goes a step further and actually does the code part uh, by recreating the final visual using R and ggplot2. There are a bunch of things that I love about the final redesign chart in general that I'll, I'll just point out. Maybe a few. I think everybody here, especially Eric, knows that I'm a sucker for a great data viz and great design. Um, so flipping a bar chart to be horizontally oriented was one thing that uh, Elizabeth did. And that can give you a ton of additional flexibility, especially when you have you know long axis labels that you don't want to truncate or have to do funky 45 degree angles for on your X axis. Just flip it 90 degrees, put all those x-axis labels on, on the y-axis and make your bars horizontal and everything just becomes a lot clearer. At the top of the graphic itself, um, there is a clear call to action. It literally says in bold letters as the title, action needed, 10 warehouses have high error rates. Um, I will say if you do look at the, the graphic, um, Sometimes I think that it's silly to take the approach to an analysis by pointing out concern around the data points that are above the average or below the average, because that's kind of how averages work. There have to be values above it and values below it and sort of pointing those out as outliers, I think can sometimes be a little silly. But 
I'll digress. Uh, <laughs> diving into Albert's code and his blog post, I learned a ton of tips about ggplot2 that I didn't know um, and other gg family uh, of packages. So there's a function in the gg text package called element markdown Ooh. that allows you to use markdown syntax for titles and labels and axis labels on your ggplot which is awesome if you're trying to do some sort of, you know, italicization or bold or, you know, anything that you can do in, in Markdown. Um, not even sure, maybe hyperlinks as well, but a really nice function that allows you to just write straight Markdown and have that um, hit your ggplot. There are also a ton of little nuances that he does around positioning elements and aligning the axes that I think are great tricks and worth the entire read. This is definitely an awesome tips and tricks sort of article if you're uh, doing a lot of data viz. It's really incredible how his final graphic looks literally identical to the one from the storytelling with data video. So hats off to him. I'm always impressed by folks that are able to do that, take something maybe that they saw the New York Times or, or some online publication, some final graphic, and then just totally recreate it um, from scratch in R. I think there might even be a recent competition around that, like a spinoff of Sliced that I've seen. Have you seen that, Eric? There was, yeah. Nick Rand had a um, yeah had a, had a competition very similar to that, where contestants were given about thirty minutes or an hour to recreate a visualization. Um, just from a picture they, that he saw online. And yeah, we saw a lot of great contributions. I think my uh, good friend from the streamer community, Tan Ho, was on parts of those. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of great content with that. And it's another way to say that, you know, ggplot2 and the general suite of our packages or visualization really can get you to what I would consider publication quality and, you know, attention grabbing quality with infographics or however you want to, how you want to term it. Um, I feel like what Albert demonstrates here, you don't necessarily have to like get only 80% of the way there and then feed it into something like Adobe Illustrator or something. I think with the current tooling, you can pretty much get there hundred percent of the way. Maybe there are some edge cases here and there, but boy, with the capabilities that Albert shows here, and I've seen others in a community like Cedric Shearer also demonstrate these you can get that that eye popping, that attention grabbing quality without leaving the confines of R. And I think that's just really cool. Yeah. And I don't want to continue to be a stand for having less dependencies, but the things that you can do with just ggplot2 are incredible, especially once you get into like the theme arguments uh, and the theme function within ggplot2. So if you if you um, are making a lot of data viz with ggplot2 and you don't typically explore those uh, that theme function that has a bunch of different arguments that really let you customize um, all the bells and whistles of your ggplot, I would definitely recommend that that's a great place to take a look to get your data visualizations sorted to that next level to make them look non uh, not like kind of your basic uh, ggplot2 visual that everybody creates, but start to add maybe a little customization branding to your company or to you know your favorite color pal palette or something like that. I know there's a ton of uh, packages within the, the GG ecosystem that are add-on packages that help you do a, a lot of different things uh, in terms of theming as well. But I wouldn't take for granted uh, the power that ggplot2 has itself. 
Absolutely. And, and like I said, it's just so much fun to see the creations that people are creating. You know, if you're a fan of like, you know, Tidy Tuesday, for example, seeing when people put their plots online, it's another great showcase where you see the code behind it, just how polished these, these visuals can be. And certainly, yeah, Albert's post is an, an easy read to kind of see from the ground up how this is built, the approaches he takes and, and the parts that he said are the most difficult, like the positioning that can be, that can be a little dicey, but you can, you can get it done. It's just, where do you spend your time iterating and where do you kind of start to make sure your, your cognitive thinking is, is kind of smooth all the way through with creating these visuals. So it is fascinating to see these in action. So, yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do we want to go from static to interactive and talk about the last highlight that we have programming games with shiny. Oh, you bet. This is right up our alleys. Um, we've always liked to see where shiny can take us, um, in both fun directions and productive directions. Frankly, this one is both. So what are, what's Mike referring to here? Well, it's been uh, since earlier this year, uh, Jesse Mostapak, who is a developer advocate for the Shiny team at our studio, has made a concerted effort to share the process of building Shiny applications and showcasing different pieces of the Shiny ecosystem from the Shiny developers themselves. And in this particular case, um, she records this awesome video, which is on YouTube, with Barrett Schlerke, who is one of their um, developers on the shiny team. He's been featured in previous highlights before where they go through the process of building a fun game within shiny itself. In this game, you're presented as the, as the player with two caves on one side is a friendly dragon. They're going to be nice to you, but then the other side, it's a hungry dragon. They're going to eat you up and then the game's over. So very simple in premise, but yeah, fun nonetheless. And then the rest of the video after the setup, takes us through, okay, we get the idea of what we want to do. How are we going to approach it? So you start to see the design philosophy and the development philosophy all in one sitting here. Going with, say, the logic first of like, what is the flow that the user is going to go through? And then sketching out different pieces of the app, carving out with comments of where to put certain things, where to put certain user interactions, where to start putting business logic as separate functions or as reactive observe events. It's really fascinating to see uh, basically Barrett walking Jesse through this initial building and talking through the different trade-offs, the different functions that sometimes we need a little help. We look at the docs and we see that things like tab set panel have a whole bunch of new options I didn't realize before. There are lots of little nuggets in here that are really fun to see especially if you're a geek to shiny, like, like Mike and I are, we, I definitely learned a couple of things there. And one other tip that I really liked is that in the early stages, I don't think there's such a thing as being too noisy or too loud with your diagnostic messages. If you want to make sure an interaction is happening, throw a message block in there you, and you keep it there until you're really ready to be polished up. It's not hurting anything. And boy, it can save you a boatload of time with debugging to figure out, wait, I clicked that. Nothing's happening. Why not? So you at least do some tracing in that. And there, there are many other directions you can take this, but I think the approach and the, the laid back and, and fun nature of it all, it's a great way to see what Shiny looks like in action as the developers of Shiny put on their user hats for a little bit with Jesse and kind of see, okay, how do we scope this out? How do we tap into what's already existing 
and make a really fun app from start to finish. So I enjoyed it immensely. How about you, Mike? What did you think about it? I really enjoyed it as well. I've really been enjoying these fun, shiny videos from the RStudio team and Jesse and Barrett where they build a small app from start to finish. I think it's a really awesome dynamic that they have between the two of them where Barrett is an absolute shiny wizard expert, it seems, and Jesse is all of us. She, she's this average shiny developer, still learning a little bit more every single day. And shiny can be super intimidating. Uh, so I think these videos make it really approachable. Uh, and I think that's super useful for uh, you know the entire art community, uh, especially those folks who are a little bit intimidated by shiny, but maybe wanting to take those first steps. What a fun and approachable idea that Jesse and Barrett have put together with these videos. They pair program these apps and they do a great job of discussing and explaining why they make the syntax decisions they do, as well as going through some of the common shiny pitfalls and how best to avoid them. One thing that they always do up front, including in this most recent video, is develop a workflow diagram that encompasses the flow of the logic from start to finish. And this is something that I really recommend and I try to include on every single project I do, even if it's not a shiny app and just an analysis. Uh, it's a great way to quickly view how you went from point A to point Z. And it's something that you can share with technical and non-technical stakeholders alike. Uh, I personally use uh, a service called Lucidchart, which I, I do pay a few dollars a month for, for developing flowchart diagrams. Really like it. And I typically end up incorporating them uh, the, the output diagrams right into the README in my GitHub repository. I think recently there is actually now functionality to build simple flowcharts right in GitHub Readmes using Markdown and the Mermaid JavaScript library. Uh, no need for JavaScript knowledge or dependencies, pretty easy to do just in a code chunk uh, in Markdown within your README. So we'll put a link um, to GitHub's blog post around that as well for anybody who's interested in the show notes. This video is worth watching all the way through until the end though. My favorite part is watching Jesse's reaction to getting update tab set panel to work. So that when, <laughs> yes. when she clicks on an action button, the app jumps to the next tab panel and she almost jumps out of her chair herself. She is so <laughs> excited um, that that worked. And I think, again, it's a really cool feature in, in Shiny um, that we have in our tool set. So great yeah. work by, by Jesse and Barrett. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, when you see that that joy and excitement um, from users developing and finding that aha moment, it is contagious in the best way possible. I love having those moments too. I still think back to many years ago when I finally, after arduous debugging nightmares and trial and error, I got my Shiny app at work to hook with our high-performance computing cluster. I felt like the ultimate wizard, even just for one day. Just getting that to work was like one of those jumping out of my chair moments. And the person behind me like, what the heck's going on with you? I'm like, do you know what I just did? I hooked HPC with Shiny. I, have a, <laughs> I, I did it. I did it. Even if I do nothing else in the rest of my life, I got that. And so <laughs> it's those moments that are, are so fun to watch and, and, to, and to experience too. But yeah, that just... It only scratches the surface of what is possible in this space. And yeah, I think the approach that she's taking with these videos is is super awesome. And oh, I only wish I could be half as entertaining as her. It is it is good stuff. <laughs> we try, we try. <laughs> yes, yes, we do, we do. Yep. But um certainly that's not the only great content here. This issue is, as always, jam-packed with a lot of great additional resources. 
Um, one other thing that caught my attention along with our other curators, um, I want to give special mention to a renewed emphasis and call for contributors to what has been one of the most important parts of my earlier stages of my journey with R is what are called the CRAN task views. As we know, there are a ton of packages in the R community. I've lost count. I think we're over 20,000 now or so. But what the CRAN task views do is they curate a list of the packages with short descriptions for a specific domain, like say for high performance computing, for web development, Bayesian analyses. That's just a three of the many that are out there. And there has been renewed emphasis to bring uh, contributors from the R community to revamp and update these task views of the latest and greatest information. So I'll also have a link in the supplements of the show notes to the GitHub repository where they're kind of revamping these on GitHub to make it very transparent on what's happening here. But I do recall in my early R journey, this was very helpful, especially in the day and age back then where we didn't have a, a social media presence for like the R stats hashtag. There wasn't, there wasn't a Twitter back then. There wasn't a, a curated place where I could go to a blog post and see, oh, this person did this with this uh, compute cluster integration. The task views were my first foray into knowing what was possible in a specific domain. So it's great to see the CRAN task views getting a renewed emphasis on collaboration and contributions from the community. Definitely. I, I just want to give a shout out to Antti Rask, who is a, an R user out in Finland, who put up a really, really sweet uh, LinkedIn post shouting our podcast out. So oh. thank you so much for listening. Uh, I guess it, it's nice to know that content that we put together uh, on a weekly basis helps some folks out there. So thank you very much. Much for appreciated. The yes, absolutely. Well, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot more to the issue. So as always, you'll find that in our show notes, um, right at the top of the show notes section. And also we always welcome your feedback. As we mentioned, our weekly is definitely more dependent than ever on the community to help us with our, with our, um, highlights and our issues. So please, uh, submit poll requests for some of the great resources you're seeing online. And also if you have feedback for Mike and I about the podcast, um, we have a contact page directly on the podcast site. You can also send us a note on Twitter. Um, we're, we're always happy to update the show and, and make the show as best as we can for, for everybody around the world. So if people want to get a hold of you, Mike, where can they find you best? Twitter is great. Uh, Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. How about you? Awesome. I am at the RCast and... You'll be seeing some more tweets shortly as I start to announce some of my upcoming presentations and other uh, events in the community. I'm very excited for some of the things we have in store. Actually, Mike will be joining me for a panel discussion at the upcoming Absalom uh, Shiny Conference in a few weeks. So we're especially excited for that. And uh, part two of our conversation with the Shiny Dev Series is coming out later this week. So definitely be on the lookout for that as well. All right. Well, that'll do it for us for episode 73. We thank you so much for listening from wherever you are around the world. And we'll be back with another batch of our weekly highlights next week.